Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. In this segment, we are going to be going to December 8th for our first night of the virtual ice series, our first ever virtual ice series. We're joined by Jason Mitchell and Matt Johnson as they talk ice fishing tips and tactics. These two guys are an absolute wealth of information. They have spent countless hours on the ice perfecting their craft. And what's really cool about these virtual segments is that the audience asks questions. It can be, you know, anything from favorite lures to shoreline tactics or finding weed lines or any sort of ice fishing question. And, uh, and Jason and Matt did a really excellent job in this segment. If you miss this live, you missed out on the opportunity to register and potentially win a $2,500 prize package from Clam. And we, we are starting to do these virtual segments quite a bit now. So just stay tuned to Shields Outdoors, Facebook and Instagram, and you'll be able to see when these next series are gonna happen. So without further ado, here is our first segment of the Virtual Ice Series with Matt Johnson and Jason Mitchell. Good evening, everyone. Welcome tonight to the Virtual Ice Fishing Fest. We're very excited to have Jason Mitchell and Matt Johnson here tonight with us from Clam Team. Uh, it's gonna be an action-packed night. We've got a ton of questions coming in already, which is fantastic. Uh, keep those questions coming in. We've got a $5,000 prize package given away tonight uh, from the Clam Team. It's gonna include all sorts of fun stuff. We'll get into some more of that nitty-gritty details later on tonight. Please make sure you've registered. Uh, if you have not already, if you're tuning into YouTube or Facebook, the uh, current web address is, I just had it there. It is shields.com forward slash ice series. Make sure you get registered on that one so you qualify for the prize package. So my name is Ben Fleischacker. We're gonna get going. Right now I do all the product development for Shields Outfitter and Shields branded items. Uh, very excited for 21 coming up here. We got some great prize coming in the springtime as well as the fall, so please keep tuned for that. And uh, we'll kind of jump in. We've got Jason Mitchell here staring at me right now on the camera, so I'm going to pick on him first. Uh, <laughs> welcome tonight, Jason. We appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to do this. I know you're, you've been out fishing. I mean, social media has been blowing up with you already, so appreciate all the feedback you've been giving out there on that. But if you would, kind of give us a little bit of your background. I mean, for anybody that doesn't know who you are. Well, yeah, I, was, I have to joke and disclaimer, I've tried a lot of things that don't work. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I started guiding at a young age. You know, I was 20, 21 years old when I started in by the time I was 22, you know, I was making a living full time doing it up on Devil's Lake here. And I did it for goodness, 15 years. And then um, about 10, 12 years ago, I had the opportunity to get in the television business through Tony Dean, who had, you know, he was on TV for 25 years for, you know, people that are a little older that remember that. And uh, we've been going strong on television now for 12 years. And, you know, the industry is continuing to change. You know, we've got television used to be, you know, used to be broadcast television, then it switched to cable television. Now, you know, we're doing stuff like this. And so, you know, the industry's changed, but, uh, you know, the basics haven't, you know, uh, helping people catch fish, you know, motivating, encouraging people to get out and fish. Uh, beauty of fishing is that anybody can get out and do it. Anybody can get good at it, you know? And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's why we do what we do. We love fishing and we love people. Very good. Thank you. Matt, you there? I'm there. Perfect, Matt. You mind giving us a little bit of your background too? Absolutely. Kind of like Jason started guiding at a young age. Uh, went to college and realized I uh, could make a little more money guiding people instead of uh, hanging clothes or flipping burgers. So I started guiding when I was 19 years old in college and never looked back and loved teaching people, getting people involved in the sport. And like uh, like Jason said, you know, there's really no wrong way to do it. You go out there, you go fishing, have some fun. And, uh, you know, your smile is your smile. And what your goal is every day is is something you can put at it. And it's exciting. That's great. Now, would you say you're more of a bass angler? You know, in the summertime, yeah. I mean, I guide on Lake Minnetonka, and you kind of have to bass fish out there. It's worldly known. But yep. in the wintertime, I, uh, I catch them by accident. Uh, but uh, they're fun to catch in the winter, too. Oh, yeah. 
Very good. All right, well, let's jump in some questions here. We've got Brady or Bradley, excuse me. Uh, very generic question here, which is going to be great because it's going to leave it open to all states here. But if you have to pick your favorite lake to fish, what species would it be and then what lake? Pick on Jason here. Oh, boy. I, don't ever make me pick. <laughs> <laughs> I love it all. I mean, it's funny because every week, no matter where I'm at, it's, yeah, I'm at one of my favorite places doing one of my favorite things, and the next week I see the same thing. So what does that tell you? <laughs> yeah, you like to fish. <laughs> I love it all. I mean, I love ice walleyes. I love shallow walleyes. And then I go lake trout fishing and think, oh, man, I love lake trout. And then I catch a big blue, you're like, oh, I love panfish. I mean, I, <laughs> I yeah. Yeah, I hope I never, ever have to pick. It's like picking a favorite kid. You can't, you know, eh. at least in front of them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love it all. Very good. Is there a certain region that you like more, Jason? Wherever they're biting. <laughs> Spoken you know, like a true fisherman. And I love being by myself, you know, and so whenever I get to really remote places where I feel like I'm traveling back in time, and I'm uh -huh. the only idiot out there. And, you know, when you, when you drive into town, I'm like, what are you here for? What are you doing? What's that big trailer for? Oh, yeah, I'm here to fish. You came all the way here to fish? You know, and they look at you like you're crazy. I love those places, yep. <laughs> you know, because you're the only one out there doing it, you know, and so I yep. love that. I love exploring. We strike out at times. I mean, there's been, you know, rabbit holes we've gone down, lakes we've gone to, where we probably won't go back for a while, but that's all part of the adventure, you know, it's just the journey. Mm -hmm. uh, I love, I love trying stuff, experimenting, uh, drilling holes in places where uh, maybe they don't have a lot of fanfare, a lot of recognition. You know, I love mm -hmm. going down roads less traveled if I can. Very good. Matt? Yeah, I'd say, uh, I'd echo what Jason said. I mean, depending on the year or even the month, I'm going to tell you a different body of water or a lake I like to fish. And now that my kids really got involved in ice fishing, you know, we've grown and built memories together. So we've done trips to Lake of the Woods. We've done trips to Devil's Lake out there with Jason. And, you know, we fished some local lakes. But like Jason said, I'd say, honestly, my favorite lakes are the ones where we stumble across a bite or a pattern that we had to really work for. One that didn't exist. Uh, and it may be uh, off the beaten path and bang. But uh, if I had to give you a one, to me, it probably is, uh, this is different from the most, catching catfish through the ice on the horseshoe chain. Uh, I still <laughs> love doing that. And it, it turns of anyone that hasn't done it, it, it will change the way you ice fish and it's fun to do. So uh, that's one I really like, enjoy. Something different. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Very good. All right, so now we got a question coming from Talon here. Uh, it's in regards to snowmobile and ATV ice fishing. Uh, what are some of the aftermarket uh, rigging systems, you know, for your actual machines? What, what do you guys recommend? Where do you find them? Where do you use? I mean, outside of being, you know, in someone's garage with a metal shop or something. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different examples out there. What do you guys end up doing? Matt, do you want to answer or should I? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of brands out there that make some quality stuff. I mean, uh, you have to jump into the ATV realm and there's not a ton of I'd say ice fishing specific brands that we're probably accustomed to endemically, uh, but there are, uh, you can find some out there. If you jump into ATV shops, uh, you might have a local one that sells whatever brand. You'll see some, uh, lack of a better term, apparatuses that go on the back of an ATV for a bucket. Um, I know Excel Outdoors used to make some of those products. Uh, you can find stuff that each manufacturer, whether it's Articap, Polaris, uh, you go down the list, they make some of their own, you know, in independent products that they have their label on mm -hmm. and like you said though fortunately or unfortunately i know at clam if you look at our machines it's all done in-house we have fabricators in-house that are bending conduit and uh, you know welding things and the unfortunate thing is every machine's different there's no consistency so you really have to customize things and that's probably the best way to do it is to find a good buddy that can weld or has a welding machine uh, bring him a walleye dinner because he just caught it and see if he can fabricate some stuff on your machine. And that's probably the most foolproof way to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. You're going to have to build it yourself or customize it with a welding shop. And one thing I tell you is if you're going to go through a lot of bush, for example, and portage between lakes, narrow trails, you know, you don't want your, your auger rack, for example, pointed behind you lined up with your sled. If you're out on the wide open, I recommend having it in front of you across your sled so that you can see it. Okay. Uh, your electronics, your tackle boxes, your rods, you want to make sure that that's on your machine and not getting towed behind because whatever's in that tub is going to get banged up and beat up and vibrated in a bad way. And so mount your GPS front and center on your handlebars where you can see it just like when it's in your boat. Hardwire it to your battery. Don't use a cigarette plug-in uh, because um, 
it, you know, you're going to lose it when you're dry, bouncing across the ice. And so hardwired into your battery, run a, a second battery. A lot of cases, if you're running a lot of electronics off your machine, especially these ones that have uh, electronic ignitions with no pull start, when you're dead, you're dead. You know, you need jumper cables, you know, to somebody, a buddy to come over to help you. Mm -hmm. And so have a second battery if need be. Um, you know, your rod racks and everything. A lot of people will mount a tub in the back. That way they can put another tub for a one man. And even if you don't use that one man, you put your Vexilar, you know, if you have a free Vexilar, um, you know, some people are running panoptics, uh, whatever. Um, uh, tackle boxes, you know, anything that, that because on your, especially on a snowmobile, you know, especially with your tackle and stuff, it's going to be a lot smoother ride. It, it get everything off the ice. Mm -hmm. Very good. Right on. Well, it kind of go on in line with that too. Um, how much ice do you guys recommend? I mean, not only for the machines out there, I mean, there's generic stuff out there and, you know, this is personal, personal preference for you guys. And, uh, the second caveat to that question coming from Nicole K is how much ice should there be for an individual to be going out fishing? You know, the part of the question is how cold does it have to be, uh, to trust the ice won't break. And that's kind of a different question. Depends on the time of year. I mean, I've been ice fishing with t-shirts on before, uh, vice versa, you know, with a park that you can't move in. So Jason, you want to take this one? Well, the biggest thing is if it's early ice, if it's questionable ice, always, always, always have a spud bar, okay? Just a big heavy metal bar with a, like a chisel tip, and you pound the ice hard as you walk in front of you. And with one good hard pound, you're going to break through about two, three inches of ice with that spud bar. And if water doesn't come up, you've got two to three inches of ice, which will hold or support, you know, your average adult, okay? Mm -hmm. And obviously, if it's late ice, that's a completely different animal when, when, when it's soft, when it's spongy. But usually early ice, it's clear. Uh, even even these temperatures right now, we're getting these 40, 50 degree days. The sun's so low that where I'm at, we're still making ice during the day. You drill a hole and three hours later, the hole froze over. It's got ice on it. At night, the ice is the lakes are booming. OK, they're, it's making ice. And so the sun's so low right now that 40 degree day you know, it doesn't really do much to destroy the ice like a 40, 50 degree day does in April because the sun's so much higher and the days are so much longer. And so always have a spud bar. And, you know, the, the general consensus is, you know, you need three inches of good, clear, hard ice to walk on. OK, some people will tell you less, but that's, you know, there's always some crazies out there. I would recommend three inches. That's that's a lot of ice to support you. And it, especially if it's clear ice, you know, even look at the cracks as you walk so you can gauge the thickness in and carry that spud bar and, and pound as you go because the thing is there could have been geese sitting in that spot um you know three weeks earlier they, yep. they could have kept it open and there's a big difference between one inch and three inches no there's no gray area there right and so three inches is good to walk on you just have to make sure that it's still three inches and don't assume anything i'll see four or five people on a four-wheelers out on six inches of ice but there might be an area where there's three inches and a guy sees the People sitting out there, they just drive right to them and park right next to them, not even knowing how much ice there is. Don't take other people's decisions or judgment and just assume that that makes it safe. Check for yourself. Do your own diligence, especially this time of year. And so three inches for walking, uh, six inches, seven inches for ATVs, you know, some of the smaller, lighter side-by-sides, and then generally 12 inches for driving a vehicle. I personally like 14 inches. I mean, I, I, I'm... I've fallen through before. It's terrifying. It's it's scarier and harder to get out than what a lot of people joke about. And uh, that was when I was 20 years old, right out of basic training. I was in the best shape of my life, and I had all I could do to get out. And I know for a fact that most people aren't in that good of shape. When I'm 45 now, I know I'm not near the man that I was then. And so it, you know, it, it's uh, it's nothing to joke with. It's nothing to compromise. You know, yep. but at the same time, if you use some common sense and, and take some precautions. Icy, ice fishing is like the safest, funnest thing you can do. You just, oh, yeah. you don't, don't be foolish. So, Yep. Very good. And then how about safety? You know, are you, when you're checking ice, you know, if you're going out there and you think there's two, maybe three, four inches, I mean, what do you guys have for safety equipment with you? Are you going by yourself? Well, do you always have the buddy system? Try to have, you know, somebody with you, but a throw rope is a big thing. Even if it's just a rope in a, in a boat cushion, a uh, clam makes a throw rope that fits in a bag that you can throw it out. Uh, lift suits or even nothing else, just wear your life jacket. Uh, ice cleats are a big thing because the ice is slippery. The reality is you're probably more likely to slip and fall on your head or take a bad tumble, especially if you drill a hole on glare ice and it gets slippery. I would say more people fall and get hurt than they'll ever fall through. So wear, you know, wear a good pair of ice cleats. Um, what else? Ice, you know, the chisels, most important thing. Don't go out there without a chisel. Flotation, ice picks that you wear around your neck. You know, you just, you know, 
just they hook together around your neck. That way, if something, if you were to fall through, you can pull yourself back out. It is hard to get out, you know, because the biggest thing is you got to get almost horizontal, and that gets cold and wet. And no, mm -hmm. and you know, it's just your natural reaction not to get horizontal and wet, because it's hard to. It's like pulling yourself out into a boat, right? I mean, that's the type of, you know, that 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 can be how hard it can be if your clothes get weighed down. And so, um, you know, float suit picks. Even if you don't have a pick, just have a screwdriver in your pocket. Just something they can use to get out. And, you know, let people know where you're at. That way, if something happens, you know, people know to look for you. Yep. Very good. All right. I'm going to combine two questions here with one. Um, this one's talking about for most of your jigging with any bait. Do you use just minnow heads? Do you use a full grub? Do you use a full minnow? And I'm going to kind of tie that into with the Tika minnow. Um, the Tika minnow question was, do you tip it with bait? So... Double face question. I know Matt, you got a Tika minnow in front of you, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, I was uh, tempted to eat it just here on camera. <laughs> um, I fish it without bait a lot of times and, and I'm generally not a big bait angler. I'm using plastics if I'm pan fishing or silkies and Tika minnows and spoons if I'm walleye fishing. And, you know, this type of bait, I think can get that impulse strike. You can work it in a manner to where walleyes want to come in and they want to crush it. You know, now I'm not saying you're not going to have those days where you know, your Vexlar is your mood indicator. When a fish comes up and they stop and put the brakes on and you watch that mark change, you may have to entice them with a piece of meat. But I'm always starting uh, any application, whether it's a tikka minnow, a spoon, uh, a plastic for a panfish without bait. And I'm trying to get that aggressive fish out of the school. And then I let how that school dictate the bite future. So I'd say I'm usually fishing it without bait getting after it i'm pretty aggressive on how i fish i want that active fish out of the school and then i let's then i see what uh what the fish do from there mm -hmm. yeah I, th I think it depends on where you're at as far as when you're looking for fish for example you're just trying to cover a lot of water uh, not only are, are you making moves to cover that water but you're also fishing so that you can cover water by pulling fish into you from further away okay and so a lot of times um when I'm looking for fish, I'm fishing aggressively, not just with my rod cadence as far as the stroke, but also, you know, going from hole to hole, spacing my holes apart. And I just want to find signs of life. I want to mark fish. I want something to stop me or slow me down. And what I find is when I'm the first person on those spots, when you're looking for fish and you're fishing new water and you're the first people, you know, first auger to drill over the top of those fish, you're going to get a few fish that meet you halfway that are just going to make you look good no matter what you do. Okay. And when you can fish aggressively, say when you can rip that uh, lure and then rip it again, and then a fish shows up and then bring it up six inches and bring it up another six inches. And by the time it gets to you, just boom, you know, the rock tip just loads up. You don't need bait on that type of a bite that, that, you know, just it, it, when you get that acceleration, you get that fish to rise in the water column. By the time they get to you, they're so wound up that they just eat it. Okay. Now, after you wear out your welcome, you catch those easy fish, you catch those fish that make you look good. Well, guess what? If you're going to stay in that same spot and pick over what's left, you might have to bob that treble hook. You might have to slow it down. You might get that fish to raise hard and then stall. And then you might get them three inches and they're nose to nose with it. And you know what? It's like, I can't catch fish on a slip bobber without live bait, right? In the summer, we all know that gulp works. We all know that soft plastics work or whatever. But if I were to take a gulp crawler and put it on a slip bobber and let it sit there, I wouldn't have very good confidence. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the way to think about it is when you have to get more passive, more subtle because of those fish that aren't wound up, that's when the bait stuff starts taking over. And so it's a progression. You start out maybe no bait, you catch those fish, or you or you find the fish with no bait by fishing that way, and you wear out your welcome, and then to catch a few more, you might have to have a minnow head. And guess what? You get to where you can't get fish to lift on that anymore, and pretty soon you're you know, you're getting some on a dead stick. And so that's kind of the progression, the spectrum from aggressive to passive, if that makes any sense. Very good. And they yep. kind of even go into that uh, that passive with the dead stick. Uh, we got Chuck R. Then he's specifically asking you here, Jason. Sorry, Matt. You're you're important to me. Fine. Don't worry. Uh, but with Jason, what is your go-to fish if you want to go out for a couple hours and just sit? You know, if you're not looking to run a gun, uh, just looking to well, hang it, out. It, it, it so depends on where I at or where I'd be living, okay? When I take my kids out, for example, when they were really little, it was a train wreck where if we went an hour where one of them didn't put their foot and leg down the hole, that was a good day. Okay. And, and I could only take them out one at a time because they, you know, they'd be fighting with each other, you know? And I remember my wife and I renting a fish house one time and we've got a pizza and we were bringing kids 
cartoon movies out there. We didn't last an hour, you know. Uh, kids are both soak, soaking wet, minnows all over the floor, the fish house. I mean, it was just, and so it just depends on what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do. And if you're like, for example, I take my kids out pike fishing where we'd sit in the truck and put tip ups out and it was comfortable. We were warm, flag would go up and, you know, we did a lot of things wrong some days and caught fish, you know, mm-hmm. as far as the hook set, bringing the fish in, whatever. On another lake, say you're in Fargo, it might be a, a, a bluegill lake in Detroit Lakes where you just want to be able to walk out 50 yards, drill a hole along a weed line and, and you know, do something as simple as sight fishing five feet of water where you can just see these six, seven inch bluegills come in and let a kid experience that and just get hooked, you know. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on where you're at and what, you, what you're doing. But there are so many basic, simple things to do to get into ice fishing. And even if you've done a lot of ice fishing, you just never get tired of it, you know. And uh, it could be pike fishing with tip-ups. It could be panfish. It could be um, walleye bites on some fisheries. You know, there's just, just so much out there. So, you know, I, I, I'd have to get more, uh, more a specific answer, you know, question to give a yeah. more specific yeah. answer. But there's a lot of good stuff out there to do. Absolutely. Easy stuff. Very good. Okay. Uh, we've got a pile of beginner questions here. And so let's try to look at and to kind of group them together. So what is the basic equipment? You know, for, if somebody really wants to get into the sport uh, without spending a lot of money, I mean, that's one thing that we've seen in 2020, you know, through the chaos of everything is the actual recruitment of new fishermen or people that have not been fishing for a while now getting back into it. And so, uh, one thing at Shields that we've been seeing is just a total increase of sales of all the equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you have an unlimited checking account, you can buy whatever you need to, and you can buy all the all the fun toys. But, you know, for a person that's just looking to get into it, what are some of the basic necessities that, you know what, you need to have this in your arsenal? You know, whether it's jigs, whether it's rods, ice scooper, you know, do you need a power auger? Can you get away with just a hand auger? I mean, in general, what would you guys say? This is a question for both of you. I like both of your guys' perspective. Sure, I can, I can start off. I mean, I always like to tell people if you're not warm and comfortable on the ice, you don't want to be out there if you're getting into it. So proper clothing is important. And some of that stuff you may already have at home, whether it's a long underwear, base layer, things like that. But having a warm suit, having a good pair of boots, having a good pair of gloves, a hat. I learned any new client I take on the ice fishing on a guide level, if they're not dressed appropriately for a day on the ice, they don't want to do it again. So good, warm clothes, you know, having a good ice suit, something like that. Pop-up fish house. The hub house market right now, in my opinion, is gold. Uh, you don't need to break the bank. So if you're getting into the sport and you want to take, like Jason referenced, his wife and a couple kids out fishing, you can get into a good pop-up for a few hundred bucks that will house the entire family or you and three of your buddies uh, and stay comfortable and warm. So hub house is a big one. Uh, you, yeah, you don't need a power auger. I mean, they can come in handy, but you can use uh, your cordless drill in your garage right now to cut a hole in the ice. That's what a lot of us are doing. Uh, they chuck up to uh, that clam drill plate. It's convenient. It's portable. And then you can use a hand auger bit, and you're not spending hundreds of dollars. Uh, rods and reels, man, that's an open-ended question. It uh, really depends on what you find yourself doing. So if you want to target panfish at the handful of trips, a year you want to go out on is going to be bluegills and crappies, then yeah, you want to scale it down and match the rod and reel to the fish you're targeting. If you say, I'm doing three ice fishing trips a year, I'm going to Mille Lacs, I'm going to Lake of the Woods, I'm going to Red Lake, whatever it might be, then you might want a walleye set up. So, you know, rods and reels can get all over the place. My advice would be a medium light combo. Uh, That allows you to do a little bit of everything. You can fish bluegills and crappies and perch, and you can do uh, a lot of walleye fishing with the medium light combo. Uh, you can kind of get the best of both worlds. And then from there, you kind of figure out what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell people the most is uh, get out there, try it out, see what you like, and you're going to find the niche that you want. You're going to gravitate towards panfish, and then you're going to go crazy with noodle rods and spring bobbers and the tungsten jigs and all the fancy stuff. Or you may decide, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna chase perch, I'm going to chase walleye, and you may shift that other direction towards you know, stronger line types and different lure applications. So, but for me, you have to be comfortable on the ice. If you're cold on the ice, which is not an excuse nowadays with what we have available, um, then you don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So wear the proper clothing, layer up, uh, have the stuff on you, on your person so that you can be out there and use what's on you as your fish house to stay warm for a day of fishing. That's probably the biggest tip I'd say for beginners and getting into it is proper clothing. It doesn't matter what rod or 
Vexla or Augury have. If you're cold and you don't want to be out there and you're miserable, you won't do it again. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think you can get by with a surprisingly little amount of equipment. Okay. Uh, I remember as a kid, you know, we didn't have hardly anything. I remember getting a, you know, standing on top of a bucket, you know, with a hand auger and just taking forever to drill a hole and you'd finally drill it and you wouldn't go anywhere because it took so much work, you know, and then um, having a gas auger then work and going out and driving over to the lake, knowing full well, I could never, ever get my gas auger started and then pulling on it in front of a bunch of people so that everybody could see that my auger would start and then walking over to somebody like a black lab looking for a snack, hoping that somebody drill a hole for me. And guess what a lot of people did, you know? And so that's the thing I always, you know, I, I see uh, single parents, for example, all the time at seminars and stuff where be like a, you know, mother will come up to me and want to get her kids out fishing. You know what, you know, especially like, you know, I'll use Fargo as an example. You know, you get over to Fergus Falls, Detroit lakes area. There's so many great panfish lakes and we'll just talk panfish because that's easy. It's something that will hook anybody and, you can get, you know, you, every lake has got a hole where you'll see 10, 15 hard-sided fish also in the wintertime. And chances are, if you're friendly and, you're, and you approach some people and ask for some knowledge and help, a lot of people will help you. You know, they'll tell you what they're catching. They'll tell you some basics, how they're, you know, 20 feet of water, 10 feet down, 12 feet down, whatever it is. And the other thing that I tell a lot of people is look for clear water lakes. Okay, look for lakes that are really clear because what that enables you to do, if, if it's an option, every part of the country is different, but if you can find some small panfish lakes that have really good water visibility, you can check that information out on the DNR websites as well, the SISHI disc readings. Say if it's 10 foot readings, 12 foot readings, clear water, you can, you can walk out on the ice, especially early ice when you're walking out, see where the weeds are frozen in the ice, get right past on that outside edge of those frozen weed beds, you're on the outside edge of that weed line, drill a hole, and I guarantee you, you can be in blue jeans and a sweatshirt, pull the hood over your head and look down and see bluegills show up within 10 minutes. And I tell you what, I remember being sixth grade and laying on the ice, soaking wet, freezing, but I couldn't pull myself off the ice and I couldn't stop looking because I was just infatuated with it. If there's a way to hook kids or hook somebody new, it's just drill, get a hole drilled over some clear water where you can sight fish and watch these bass come in. These big pike will come rolling in and they'll be fanning their pectoral fins and all of a sudden, you know, they'll hit it. And I mean, it's just addicting, you know? And so that's something I tell a lot of people to do is get an area where you can sight fish. It doesn't take a lot. Like Matt said, you can buy a hub, you know, it doesn't, you know, just starting out doesn't even necessarily have to be an insulated hub, just something that'll keep you out of the elements. Over time, you know, you're going to get hooked. Maybe you're neighbor's got a old buddy heater or a Mr. Heater or something you can borrow. You take the barbecue or the propane tank off the barbecue grill. You'll patch things together and make it work. But just to get started, it doesn't take hardly anything. Once you get hooked, you can add things. You might need to, you know, okay, I'm going to get a Vexlar now because when I get past that weed line, I can't see them anymore, you know. And then the next thing is, okay, I'm going to put an app on my phone for a GPS. Then over time, you know, that ain't good enough anymore. I need to have a, I need to have a GPS on my four-wheeler. You know, that stuff will all come. You know, it'll all come and you've got your whole life to put it together and, and add it. And that's what makes it fun is every year you buy something fun to add to your, to what you do, right? And make yep. it easier and better. But getting started, you can get by with so little to get hooked, you know, and to catch mm -hmm. fish. The fish don't look up and care, no, you know, if you have a $10,000 four-wheeler or, or a, how what you have. And, and the other thing too for rods, you can have a cheap rod with a spring bobber and catch every bluegill in the lake. Yep. You know, that's the reality of it. And so take that. You know, take that to heart too. So, yeah, um, I grew up in Nebraska for the most part, and our ice fishing. I mean, some days it was a week, or some I should say some years. Some days, or some years, sorry, it was a couple days to a week. Sometimes it was a couple months. But I mean, when I first started seeing hubs on the on the ice, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the craziest thing in the world because we just grew up shooting, you know, sitting on a bucket, you know, with the rods <laughs> yeah. that are you know ten dollars, and it's you wind the line on it by hand. You know, it's not even like a, a reel by any means. But we all started out there. We used to build our own four by eight portables with t blue tarps and two by twos that would go across the roof. And I haven't seen one of those yep. on the ice in 20 years, yep. you know, and yep. so yep. I yep. built a for pretty humble roots. Yeah. I built a wood box for my Vexlar in ninth grade shop class instead of a clock. <laughs> so, you know, you gotta, you gotta start someplace. I still got that wood box. I still got that Vexlar and sits in the laundry room. That's awesome. Yeah. That's perfect. Cause the next question is going to be some on electronics here. Um, what are you guys' favorite electronics and what's your thoughts on the pan optics? Well, I can take it. I mean, I think uh, I'm a Vexlar guy. I, I really believe in the in the analog signal, the broadband signal. The reason being is that it, it details movement so good. Okay, 
when fish change their body posture, when they, a lot of times they'll kind of cock themselves and their fins change, uh, even if that signal doesn't go up or down or move or do anything, it'll flutter. And that movement tells you whether those fish are responding and like your presentation or whether they don't. And the other thing is it enables you to look in weeds better and look into the bottom better if you have a blind spot in your cone angle. And so the real time, that anal raw analog signal uh, on a Vexlar to me is just, it's king. That's why so many people use a Vexlar, use a flasher. Uh, digitized signals work, you know, it shows you a line, but it doesn't give you that type of detail or that type of information. I think there's a time and place for panoptics, um, which basically is it's a different type of sonar where you, you, you put the transducer in the water and you can scan with it, okay? Mm -hmm. And what it's really shown me is that fish move around a lot more than what I ever envisioned when you can see them moving, you know? And so you can scan and, and where it really shines in my mind is say if you're over a bowl and uh, there's crappie suspended, instead of drilling 20 holes to find those fish, you can drill three or four or five. You can narrow it down a lot quicker. But what you find is that the fish are still moving around. They're basically swimming in a circle, like mm -hmm. finding Nemo. They're just, you know, they're not staying in one spot. And so you still have to drill your grid of holes. You still have to bounce from hole to hole. I, and I think most people agree that, that use panoptics, once you find the fish, you still go back to your Bexler to catch them. But the panoptics is just a tool to narrow down the chase and help you find them. Just like a, a GPS mapping is an important tool as well, where you want to have that map. That's another tool that narrows down your search. You know, as far as finding edges, finding transitions, and finding and understanding structure. So it's another that, tool that complements, you know, your sonar. So. And even, you know, yeah. to the GPS and the late contour maps, I mean, this is, I guess, question one point, you know, A or whatever, but what do you guys look for when you're looking at new body water on that? You know, we got the electronics, you know, whether it's going to be the digital or the, the analog style, but when you're looking at the, the contour maps, what are you guys looking for on new body water? If I was to say, hey, the Sandhills in Nebraska got this really hot, you know, farm pond going on. You got to go knock on this person's door, but they're going to let you in there. It has been graphed, you know, 15 years ago. What do you guys look for on those? I mean, I look at, I look for changes in contour and sometimes some of the things that are the most abrupt to you, there's fish on them. I think sometimes we overthink this way too much. We think we got to go someplace completely different, change the game. But sometimes looking at the most obvious piece of structure, if I'm looking at my Navionics app on my phone or whatever, if my GPS on my quad, and I'll look for differences in sometimes subtle changes. If you're fishing a farm pond, like you said, in Nebraska, sometimes a two foot divot makes all the difference in the world. Something yeah. to stop that fish, because what happens is, you know, those depth ranges, not only do the fish hold to them, but they hold them because the sediment's different. There might be an insect bloom at nine feet instead of seven feet. And we've seen it so many times where I'm catching fish in one spot. My buddy's 10 yards away, not catching nothing. And the differences could be in depth. So I'm looking at that sort of stuff. You know, I'm doing, I'm really doing my research. Jason made a great point earlier in this presentation about going to your DNR website mm -hmm. and doing the research. If I want to catch bluegills, I want to go to a lake that's got good bluegills in it. So if I can take away some of that guesswork ahead of time by checking out the DNI website and looking at the gill nets and some of those things, some of the research that they've done, I can alleviate that that right away. And biggest thing too is doing your homework the day before you hit the ice. I mean, I'm not telling anybody to go back to school by any means. Well, some of us have done enough of that. But you can plan your day of fishing before you hit the ice. The worst thing you want to do is pull up to the edge of that ice uh, and look out there and go, what am I going to do today? Uh, where should I start? Oh boy. I mean, I better do that stuff the night before. And we have these tools in our, literally in our pockets. You know, I have one in my pocket right now called a cell phone uh, where I can literally sit and look at that app the night before Jason and I can sit down over a burger uh, the night before we go fishing or even that morning at, at, you know, when we're, when we're talking and do the homework, do the research and hit the ice and be ready and prepared. That's something I think too many anglers do not do. They go out there to look at the big group of fish houses and they go, I'm going to go by them. They must be catching them. But I'm telling you, as a guide in the metro area of Minnesota, that's never where the best fish are. That's never where the biggest fish are. And if you're going to sit and put by those people, you better be ready to catch fish at windows of time and that's it. Otherwise, you're staring at your Vexlar. Get off the beaten path, do it on your own. And don't be afraid to cut holes. They're efficient nowadays. Don't be afraid to cut holes. Don't be complacent. You wouldn't throw an anchor uh, on, in the boat and make the same cast. 400 times in a row for five hours. Why would you do it through the ice? So yep. mobility, get up after it and chase them down.
Very good. All right. And again, everybody that's tuning in right now, please make sure you guys are registering uh, for the event on YouTube or Facebook. It's uh, shields.com forward slash ice. Let me scroll that up again real quick to make sure I got the right website. Yep, ice series forward slash ice series. Um, and when you do this, it automatically enters you into the $5,000 price package that Clam has provided to us, which is extremely awesome. Appreciate you guys doing that. All right, so now we got a loaded question here. Not saying that none of these have been loaded yet, but for the best tactics, what would you guys say, you know, taking a look at the season of the ice? So early season, mid-season, late season. What are you guys' ice tactics for walleye? And we'll just well, talk about the upper Midwest. Uh, yeah, I'll start. I, I think no matter what time of year, be the hunter and be the first person to find fish, okay? Uh, it doesn't matter what time of year. They're a lot easier to catch when uh, you're the first person on them. Okay, by the time a crowd gathers, the bite's over. Okay, by the time you see 10 pickups idling over seven feet of water on a great walleye bite where they bit last week, I can guarantee you they're not going to bite this week. Okay, and so don't chase reports. Uh, find fish, you know, you're going to strike out at times. You know, you're going to, you know, check some spots that disappoint you. But uh, to get a, to get the best fishing, you got to be the hunter. you got to be the first person on spots. I, I, I can't stress that enough. And so that that has to be your overall theme, and then just trying to stay one step ahead of it. Like right now, we're catching a lot of fish shallow along shoreline structure, shallow structure, whether it's flooded roadbeds, shorelines that have some hard bottom, basically the old the old shoreline when the lakes were lower, and it's five, six, seven feet of water that gradient. And you know what? We catch fish for two, three, four days, and we start to wear out our welcome. It gets tougher, and then people gather. You know, people figure it out. There's other people around. And the bite just goes downhill. And well, you know what? You got to be on the new spot. So what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to find other spots that are like that, but in different parts of the lake that just people haven't got to yet or haven't figured out how to reach because there's a pressure ridge. And you got to get around the pressure ridge. And you know, so you just try to stay one step ahead of people. And then we'll be out on the main lake more. We're you know we'll be say we're we're catching them on a point and it's 15 feet of water and it's rock and then that spot gets beat up and you try to get to the next thing. You know and and. Uh, you're just trying to stay one step ahead. Just be the hunter. Be the person looking and drilling holes and looking for fish. Uh, the fewer the people, the better. If I can get to a part of the lake and I know there's five or six good spots in that area and there's no tracks, I'm excited. You know, I mean, I, you know, I can't stress how important that is. That's it's simple, but it's it just I don't know. People, some people don't have confidence in their abilities, or they you know, so they just want to. I even have friends that were like that. You know, that you go out fishing summer or winter. Have you ever caught them here before? No, I've never even seen this place before. Isn't this awesome? They want to turn around and go home. You know, like they're wasting their day. They don't fish unless there's a fishing report. You know, you have to just tune that out. You just got to go fish and you got to look for fish. And if mm -hmm. you do that, you just get, that's your habit. And that's what you do. You'll be the person that everybody's following. And I, I, I've, I fished with Jason many times and I can tell you, Jason's the hunter. It's uh, <laughs> something to admire. He chases fish down. I remember one day on Leech Lake, Jason probably remembers this day. I couldn't cut holes faster than he could catch them. Uh, every time I look back, there's a fish by each hole. No, he nails it. I mean, and I also think a lot of anglers when it comes to walleye fishing uh, tend to fish too deep. I think they're yeah, always yeah. thinking, I got to go deep. I got to get out on the rocks. I got to get out on the mud flats. I got to get on this or that. And I think oftentimes these fish, you know, these walleyes, they move up to feed. And the one thing you always got to remember, walleyes are going to feed more at low light periods. So if you're a guy or gal that likes to sleep in, or hit the bar early, walleyes might not be your your species. You may want to target bluegills and, and something else and tip up for pike because you got to be up there when the sun comes up. Uh, these fish make these shallow movements. You got to be on them. And I also like to do the one-two approach, and this has helped me catch and find fish, where I will tip up fish, let's say the break line, and I'll jig fish up shallower or vice versa. But I always cut an extra hole by that tip up. And I do that because once that flag goes off, oftentimes that first bite that we catch here in the cities, uh, down in the Twin Cities area, that flag goes up first. And the last thing I want to do is cut holes at prime time. So I always cut secondary holes right by my tip ups. So if the flags start going off, let's say in a break line, me and my clients can slide out and we can fish those holes that are already cut. Uh, so I always try to vary my depths. But I, I think a lot of anglers oftentimes, like I heard Jason mention many times already, uh, how it's shallow orientated walleyes. I think we drive over some of the best fishing spots in the winter constantly. And that's not just walleye fishing, that's bluegill fishing, that's crappie fishing, that's everything. I think a lot of anglers drive right out 
to the middle of the lake because they think they have to be there to catch the fish and you just went past some of the best spots yeah and to add to that too you know getting back to being the first person on the spot the gps and mapping has changed everything okay in some ways i wish we could travel back in time before lake master chip you know you, you know it used to be where i had all these waypoints in devil's lake that were worth something that meant something it took years took a whole lifetime to find now anybody with 120 bucks can buy that knowledge and so with that being said, everything that's obvious, everything that jumps out to you, everything that looks good on a lake map that's offshore really gets a lot of attention now because it's so obvious. It's just like a magnet, okay? You look at Lake of the Woods as a good example. It used to be where if you took a snowmobile out to uh, Stair and Shoals or uh, Night or, you know, some of those reefs way up north, I mean, you get there and, and nobody could find them. Only a few people had the waypoints. And when you got on those spots, it was automatic that you caught fish, Okay. Now you're driving out there and as you get closer, you just see all these specks of fish houses and you're looking at your GPS and oh, that little point's got fish houses. That little finger's got fish houses. This little, everything that looks like a squiggle on your map has got fish houses sitting on it, you know? And so, yeah, the first people catch fish. Yeah, you, it's still a good spot. It still produces fish all winter, but it's not the same. And now guess what? Like on, even on places like Lake of the Woods, some of our funnest, best bites are inshore. They're shallow, they're less than 10 feet of water. Morning and evenings, same thing on Devil's Lake, Leech Lake, five feet of water. These shallow patterns, it's like the last secret left where everybody goes to the offshore stuff that looks good on a map. And the stuff less than 10 feet isn't mapped very well because it's so subtle. It's a sand ridge with a little bit of cabbage and maybe four or five rocks in a line. It's the subtle stuff inshore that uh, gets overlooked in some of the best fishing across the board on a lot of walleye water. So what does your guys' preseason scouting look like? I mean, when you guys are out there open water fishing in your boats, are you kind of doing a, a pseudo? It never stops. It's like deer hunting. You're always trying to find a way to get into that person's property or getting permission. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're eating breakfast. It doesn't matter if you're at the grocery store. It doesn't matter if you can, you know, get permission to hunt one more good spot and have one more good deer stand. It's year round. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm marking it never stops. Man. I mean, we're marking spots on our GPSs. I mean, I would say after every guide trip, I spend some time marking a spot that looks productive. And I'm, I, we're in our boats, you know, through the entire month of October and even part of November. And we're marking spots that look good because if, you, you, like Jason said, those shallow water spots are generally not marked as well on like a Navionics chip. So you find those inside turns, you find, you know, small boulder fields, you find gravel, you find whatever, variance in weed type. Yeah. And I'm my that. favorite is a trough or an inside turn. Get an inside turn or a trough, and that's golden. That's dynamite. For yeah, you find a trough in a shallow weed flat. If oh, I got a weed yeah. flat and it's 10 feet and there's a trough in that thing, I call them corridors. Uh, they're gold. And I'll be honest, uh, some of those spots I don't even guide on just because they're so precious. They're so, you know, you can harm those spots, and they're always so close to shore. I mean, a lot of times you can throw a football to those spots from shore. Yeah. And at least where I guide, you know, there's a hundred anglers on every spot every weekend. Mm -hmm. You, you got to be mindful of that sort of stuff. So, but yeah, I know Jason nailed it. And, and just driving from the cities to Fargo today, like Jason said, you're always looking for that next bite. My wife's watching and she's, she knows how annoying it is. They even got my kids trained. When we drive by a body of water, the first thing we say is, I think there's fish in that. <laughs> what do you think's in there? You know, how much ice is out there? You know, so that's just the way our brains are wired now. I shouldn't say now. We're not obsessed. We're possessed. It's just uh, it's just the nature of the game. Yep. It's a good way to look at it. All right. Lots of uh, questions in regards to live bait versus artificial bait, along with the silky. What would you guys say? I've been absolutely obsessed with the silky the last week. I fished it hard last week. We tested it last winter. And it's one of those baits, to be honest, that at first glance, you look past it. You don't think it's much anything. You think it's another gimmick, and I totally get it. But once you start to fish it and see that you can catch 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 fish on one bait, you can manipulate it a half a dozen ways. Uh, it's something these fish have never seen before. I think you're going to see a lot of anglers that add it to their arsenal. You got to try it. I'm not telling you to go out there right now. And I work for the company at Clam. I'm not telling you to go out there and spend a hundred bucks if you don't have confidence in it right now, but get a couple packs, get out there, uh, play with it when the fish are biting, because you have to have confidence in a bait. Uh, it's, you know, when the fish are biting, you can put that in your head that it works. I'm telling you, it's magical. Uh, we caught a pile of fish last week on this, bluegills, crappies, bass, 
perch, you name it. I know Jason's been crushing fish on it. I think you were catching them today, weren't you? Yeah, I, I yeah, and I'm still using the same silky. I mean, I we just filmed a, an episode here, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know how many. I must have caught at least 30 fish on one silky. And the beauty of it is that, you know, you look at crappies and bluegills in particular. They're eating so many bugs. They're eating so many invertebrates, insects in particular, back swimmers. You know, you you see them in your hole when you drill a hole, and it's it's kind of like a like what a woolly bugger is to fly anglers. You know, woolly bugger looks like a lot of different things depending on how you fish it. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like a tube jig. A tube jig looks like a lot of different things. If you're on Lake Erie, it might be a goby, right? If you're somewhere else, you know, it might be a, a cisco or a crawfish. You know, it, it's one of those baits that looks like a lot of different things, a lot of different insects. And um, and it's different than, it's it's more durable than hair. It's more durable than synthetic or marabou. It's, uh, it just, and, and the more fish you catch on it, the more beat up it gets, the more it works. It's like, it's almost like, like I don't know if you ever noticed if you ever use marabou jigs for like small mouses that a lot of times you pull out some of the feathers on them and it, they work better. Or after you catch a bunch of fish, they work better because it's like they put all these feathers on them to make them look good in the package. They get all fluffy and puffy. Mm-hmm. And then after you catch about 30 fish on them, that's really when it comes into its own. The silky is like that in the sense that the more beat up and chewed up it gets, the more it works. And, uh, and it, I, I think it looks like a back swimmer. I mean, I... I, I would just I was just putting on a single spike. I don't think you'd have to tip them all the time. And so you know, in getting to back to the basic question, uh, plastics, uh, silky or or live bait, you know, talking panfish. A lot of times I like to start out with big profiles. I like to start out with plastics. Reason being is that they can see it from further away. I can pull fish to me, and um, I can cover water that way. And I can get fish to accelerate and lift up in the water column. And to me, that's the key to catching big fish is that uh, a 14-inch crappie could be swimming around with 10-inch crappies, and it could be right in the mix in a pack of 6-inch bluegills. But I guarantee you that 6-inch bluegill ain't going to leave the safety of the pack 3, 4 feet higher than the pack. Okay, There's only one fish in that pack that will do that, and that's the biggest one. The yep, biggest yep. fish will leave the security of the crowd and chase down that bigger. And, and the further they can see it, the further you can lift and that's how you separate fish by size sometimes is using those big profiles and forcing those fish up and fish high. And so a lot of times I like to start out with soft plastics. I use soft plastics whenever I can get away with it. There are times, however, where anyone, you know, I've heard people say, well, I don't ever use live bait. I don't have to use live bait, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if you fish enough water in, in, on enough days, you're going to also see situations where the people that are using a wax worm, for example, are going to clean your clock. You know, especially like, say, heavily pressured lakes where it's really a finesse bite and you can't get the fish to accelerate. When the window is, say, three inches, four inches, you can't get the fish to climb. You can't get the fish to raise. And uh, and you can't get the fish to respond to hard cadences and hard motions where you have to basically dead stick it and hold it still and let the fish slowly pedal up. They suck and spit, suck and spit, suck and hold, and then suck again, and then you set the hook. You can't get away with that with soft plastics. Devil's Lake's a great example of this. Devil's Lake, you're going to struggle catching perch in 40 feet of water on soft plastics. Now, there's days where it happens. I've done it some days. I've, I've been, you know, especially the shallower you get, the more you can do it. But I think what it is is in that deeper water, when you, every once in a while the water's clear enough and the sun's at a nice enough angle where you can see with, a, with an underwater camera that deep. And what happens is those fish will come up and then they suck it in. And a lot of times you imagine when the fish suck it in, that's when the rod tip dunks. That's not the case. It's it's almost disappointing. I don't care if you have a $500 ice rod. When a perch sucks it in in 40 feet of water, unless you give the fish slack and see the slack, you don't know it's there. And what happens is that fish will coast forward. And as it coasts forward, that's the dunk. Okay, that's when the rod tip dunks. Mm-hmm. And what happens is there's a competition factor on a really good bite. You've got three perch competing against each other, and they're side by side. One sucks it in, sucks it in again, and pushes ahead to get away from the rest of them. And that's the hard bite, the boom, right? And on a really tough bite, that perch just sits there and sucks and holds, okay, or sucks, spits, and holds. And that's the really tough bite where it's a brain surgery bite where that rod tip barely moves. And if you even imagine a bite, you set the hook, okay? Those are the different types of bites you encounter. And I think what happens is when you get that type of bite, those fish just don't do it with soft plastics. They might come up to it. They might pedal up to it, and they might kiss it. They might suck and spit, but it's not good enough to stick them, okay? And so there's definitely times where you have to use soft plastics, Defined fish, there's definitely times where soft plastics give you an edge. There's a lot of different options and profiles and colors and all kinds of different things that make soft plastics great. But at the end of the day, there's also days where if you leave live bait at home, whether it's spikes, wax worms, whatever you like to use, you know, you're in trouble. So that's the honest answer. Appreciate that.
Uh, friendly reminder as well as we're getting ready, we got 13 minutes before we got to cut it off. And the crazy thing is that there's seven pages in coming still of questions. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to answer them all too after this too. So let people know that we're going to gang up and, and go on and we're, we're, we're not going to leave anybody behind. So appreciate that guys. Uh, and for the audience tuning in right now, Jason and Matt have agreed already for uh, tomorrow for probably nine hours tomorrow to, to answer all these questions coming in. Cause I know Jason, you got a bunch of questions coming up on your social media page, Matt, you were saying the yeah, same thing. Disclaimers about 10 o'clock in the morning when I get back from walleye fishing. There you go. <laughs> Hopefully everybody tuned into that as well as that little tip for, uh, for timing to go out, but uh, make sure you guys are registered on shields.com forward slash I series to make sure you're registered for tonight's prize package. Uh, let's go here. Let's see if we can't get a couple more questions. Um, fishing tactics in clear water versus stained water. I think this is a good one, you know, depending on zebra mussel or depending on the water itself, I guess the body water, but what do you guys see for your tactics change? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, it, it really varies on the depth I end up fishing, to be honest, you know, clear water versus dirty water. I mean, yeah, I might change up some of my approach in terms of the lure I'm fishing, whether it's a natural color or flasher color glows. But I find myself generally fishing shallower when it's dirtier water. Uh, you have the weed, the weed growth will be shallow water, shallower at that point. In clear water, you can have deep weed growth still. And I think oftentimes as ice fishermen and anglers, we don't think that weeds grow under the ice, but what they do, and they grow well. And I can tell you a lot of fish still relate to the weeds uh, during the winter time. So lakes like Lake Minnetonka back home where I guide and one of them, we got zebra mussels all over the place and you'll get deep weeds, you'll get weeds and 16, 18, 20 feet of water in the wintertime. And sometimes you gotta be down there and in them versus another lake, you know, 10 minutes away from Minnetonka, you may find a lake that's dirty and stained and I'm fishing bluegills and six feet of water. So to me, really dirty versus clear uh, dictates the depth of water I'm generally targeting, how much light penetration comes through, all that sort of stuff. Then you think about how thick is the ice, how much snow's on top of that ice. Mm -hmm. Those things are all important. And then from there, uh, you start, throwing lures at them that maybe have more flash that have some noise, you know, rattle spoon, uh, something with a clacker blade, uh, something that swims a little more, those sorts of things. So you have to take that stuff into account. But me, when it comes to dirty versus stain, I'm more worried about the depth I'm going to fish than probably what I'm going to throw at them. Cause I think, again, we oftentimes overthink these fish. You present a bait in front of a fish. You got to be where the fish is at. It's got to move and act like something that they'd eat and they'll eat it. I'm not a big guy that thinks about the color of the lure. That's probably fourth or fifth on my list. I want to be at that right depth. I want to be where these fish are. And I want that bait to move in a way that these fish want to feed on it. So I don't know if that's consistent with something Jason's finding, but yeah, we have a various types of lakes where I'm at. We have four inch visibility and we have 15 foot visibility all within a half an hour of my house in the cities. Uh, yeah. So you, you got to adapt and move and, uh, and pick your times of day, your window bites too. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it, uh, depending on the clarity of the lake for sure. Yeah, I mean, you hit it on the head. You're better. You can do a lot of things wrong in the right place and right time. And a lot yep. of times people worry about the wrong things. You get so, you know, oh, do I need white wonder bread jig with blue eyes or red eyes? You know, I mean, if, if you know, by that point, it don't matter, right? I mean, you're in the wrong spot if it does. Okay, right. you can do some things wrong in the right place at right time. Now, one thing I would add to that is if you do have stained water, dirty water it's definitely more of a daytime bite it could be the middle of the day it could be the best time you're not going to have as good of weeds a lot of times you might not have weeds or, or good weeds weeds deep and and the weeds are going to die a lot more quickly okay and so that's going to push fish out of the weeds sooner and so a lot of times if you have clear water you might be more of a sunrise sunset low light deal it might be more of a weed line deal you're going to have deeper weeds um, a lot of times when i find stained water a lot of times it's over a basin soft basin uh, Sometimes, but not always, you don't find uh, panfish to suspend quite as much when, when the water's dirty and stained. They're more bottom orientated. But those are just rules of thumb. There's, you know, every ecosystem, every fishery's got its own personality as well. You think you figure out something, you think there's maybe some hard line rules in fishing, then you go down the road to another lake at a different time and find out that, <laughs> you know, you don't know anything some days. And so uh, those are just, you know, just generalities, I guess, that I've seen. But uh, also, too, when you are dealing with clear water, it seems like it's a lot more fluorocarbon model. It, I can't tell you how many times, I've, I mean, I love to use braid and I use braid a lot, especially for walleye fishing. But if you're dealing with really, really clear water, I don't care if it's even like Leech Lake clear or 
Um, you know, some of the northern Minnesota lakes that are really clear where you can see down, say, seven, eight, nine, ten feet of water, it's a lot harder to catch fish on braid. You know, you better at least have a long fluorocarbon leader. And I'm even at the point where I'll take a Sharpie and, and, and blacken my line just so that I get less contrast even above the fish so, so that that line doesn't distract them. But use more mono and use more fluorocarbon when you get in that clear water. Very good. Excellent. Thank you. All right. One more question. 753 is what I'm seeing. We want to be mindful of your guys' time. Again, we appreciate you taking this, this opportunity to, to work with Shields and the audience here and our customer base. Let's see. There's just so many good questions. I feel so bad not asking everything. But the nice thing is, is that they will get their answers. Um, let's try to answer this question in a couple minutes. So are there any behaviors of the fish that you need to change bait? So, you know, you're, you're marking fish or following, they, they drop back down. You know, you change your bait, they mark, they've dropped back down. What are you guys, what are your recommendations in that situation? I mean, we're, you, you switch to a finesse sure. bait, you need to go to a larger profile, dead stick. Yep. No, yeah, there's, we encounter those situations, I'd say, almost every day when we ice fish. And, you know, like I said, your vexler is going to be your mood indicator. I live and die by how fish react to what I'm doing. And all cadences have their own outcome. So when I get fish that come in fast, and put the brakes on, they don't bite. What that tells me oftentimes is I'm doing something that they like. They're coming in quick, they're investigating it. When they get close enough, there's something that's turning them off. I think oftentimes a lot of anglers stop the bait too much. Uh, they, they're working the cadence, they're working a fish in, the fish comes in, it gets close to the bait and they stop. That's in my opinion, oftentimes, one of the worst things you can do. And I'm not saying you need to continue to work a bait hard but keep moving it, keep shaking it. Don't let that fish get right in and get sights on that bait. So for one, it's oftentimes before I switch what I'm doing in terms of a presentation, I'll switch up my cadence. And by cadence, I mean my jigging action, how I'm working the bait. I think oftentimes we can change how we fish the bait before we have to change what the bait is. And if I have to downsize that downsize, a lot of times I'll take my plastic and take a piece off. If I get light biting fish, you know, but watch what they're doing. If they come in really slow on the Vexlar, and I mean, you can just see them methodically roll in, you know, you, you're dealing with a, a neutral to negative fish to begin with. Uh, then you got to really fine tune your approach. But if I got a fish that comes in hot and stalls out and stops, something you did to seal the deal wasn't right. Uh, I oftentimes, or I fish, I, I'm the type of angler that I'm upsizing even during negative bites, I'm going bigger. I want that fish to take that bait when it comes in off a reaction strike. I'm not the type of angler oftentimes that's gonna sit there holding my hand as slow as I can to finesse that fish to bite. I'll move to a new spot or I'll switch holes. I'll drop down and get that first fish to bite. Uh, so I think oftentimes it's what we're doing that can change the bite versus, oh, in my box of jigs, what do I tie on next? So change your cadence first before you switch to something else. That'd be my advice. Yeah, and I think what I would add to that is, you know, what, what are the fish giving you? Are the fish still accelerating? Are they still climbing? If, if they are, then you can win those battles usually. Uh, you know, a lot of times what you have to do is look at where your line's at. And what I mean by that, I don't care if you're using a spinning reel or a spooler reel, whatever it is, is your line's got a lifespan, okay? And when your line's brand new, you know, it's going to hang and you're still going to get that jig to turn when you stop with it. You know, Matt said it, you know, you can't just stop that jig a lot of times. What happens is, is you're working that lure aggressively and as soon as it stops, it's going to want to turn. And if, the, and if the line's built up some twist from catching some fish or from fishing hard all day, it's going to turn really fast. And you can't catch fish that way. And so what happens is, is your line gets twisted up during the day, you get fewer and fewer moves. You know, it's like playing one of those uh, Nintendo games when you're a kid, when you're like boxing somebody, but you can only push the one button, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you can't push all five buttons anymore and you, and, you get, and you get beat. That's what happens during the day is your line gets twisted up as you only get a couple moves left. You can only pound that jig hard to keep it from spinning and get that fish to jump up and accelerate and burst. And as soon as you have to bob it and stop it and just kind of let it roll and let it stop, you can't do those moves anymore as your line gets twisted up. And so you got to see where you're at with your line. Okay. Um, if your line's twisted up, you, you don't have as many moves. And if, 
you get that fish to accelerate and usually you know just keep them climbing keep them climbing keep them stepping and sometimes you get a fish it's just it's just playing games with you see if you can keep that fish around and see if you can keep that fish high and a lot of times as soon as the second or third fish shows up then it'll eat okay so sometimes it's just a matter of okay if you don't want to play fine bring your friends to me because yep, of those yeah. friends, you know what i mean because you know it's funny you, you see it on the camera all the time that fish is just you know it's not cooperating and all of a sudden another fish comes in and it's like a light switch where that fish completely changes that well, you're not going to eat this i've been staring at this for five minutes Boom! And they, they shoot forward and make you look good and so sometimes it's a matter of getting the fish up high and keeping them up there to keep bringing more fish that that want to play um and, and you know what the other thing too though is if you're fishing in 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 trying to work and trying to bring a fish in and you can see fluttering on the edges of your cone angle and that's the beauty of vexar is when you start to see that flutter in the bottom that bottom flutters but you never get a fish to separate from it you've got fish skirting the edge of your cone angle where they're coming in four or five feet away and oh i'm just not in the mood for that well then you know what a dead stick okay so when you get fish that just you just cannot get to come in that you do anything and they just go right back down the bottom uh you know, if they go down to the bottom fast and they're small marks, you know, small fish anyway, small fish act differently than big fish anyways. You don't want to fish for small fish. I'm talking, you know, like four-inch perch, whatever, a six-inch walleye. Those fish dart around, act differently than what you're after. But when you get fish that are just coming in on the edge of the cone angle, uh, dead stick. And then the other thing that I've seen, one of the toughest bites ever in my mind is when you get, when you're marking all kinds of fish and none of them want to hit, and then one out of 10 just comes in and eats it. And okay, well now imagine if you've been going through your tackle box and changing things, you've, you know, you say you put on a rattle bait, big and bold, and start fishing, two, all of a sudden a fish comes up two, three feet and nails it. Then, oh, now I'm onto a pattern, right? You drop back down, you can't catch four or five more fish. Then you switch to a dead stick and you catch one. I mean, those are the toughest bites. And, and sometimes I think what happens just from watching these fish on a camera is like these fish were at point A and the environment changed and those fish are moving. So now they're going to point B and you're in their way. You're on their route. It's like geese migrating in the sky. You can't get them to come down and look at decoys, right? They're just migrating. It's almost like fish do that sometimes, where you just see this wave of fish, and you'll see their body postures or their fins are tight to their bodies, and they're just going from point A to point B, and it's almost like you're invisible. It doesn't matter what you do. They're just swimming on by, like, you know, and all of a sudden, one of them comes swimming by, and his fins are up, and you can tell by the, as soon as you see the fish that it's going to bite because it has a completely different posture. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It just eats. And it's a percentage thing, or one out of 20 is like that, or one out of 30. And those are the toughest, or the toughest bites that really screw up your head. And you just have to understand what's happening. And so, you know, a lot of it's a process of elimination. You try one thing, and that doesn't work. You try something else until you, you know, what's the saying? You catch two fish, that's hopefully a pattern. So, Some people, I think, would just be excited to catch two fish. So, <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's I've had days where it caught less than that. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of tough days ice fishing over the years, I can tell you that. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Well, guys, it is 8 o'clock. Um, it looks like we do have a winner. And this winner right. is going to receive a complete setup from Clam, including a Clam X600 thermal ice hub and the accessories, a park of bibs, plus rods, reels, and tackles. So it's, it's a fantastic prize package. And uh, I'd like to announce the winner, who is Heather P. from Shakopee, Minnesota, if I pronounce that correctly. All right. That's so congratulations, cool. Heather. And uh, very excited for you and appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, I want to thank Jason and Matt for you guys taking your time again. Uh, I know it's probably not difficult to get you guys to talk about ice fishing because it's a huge passion for you. And <laughs> that you went are, quick. <laughs> it's insane how fast it went. And I'm telling you, there's so many questions. So please. Yeah, and we're going we're gonna to spend some time and answer those questions. Too. I really we'll appreciate that. pages and gang up on it. So. Very good. And so, Heather, we will reach out to you and uh, get a hold of your contact information and get this price package figured out. Uh, again, tomorrow night, we've got another one. We've got Sam Sobey and Jason Mitchell coming back to us. So we appreciate you guys. Uh, please make sure you're registering at shields.com backslash ice series. I apologize for saying forward slash. And I want to thank the, uh, the video team for setting me up on that one. Thanks, guys. Um, next thing is, is that we're going to see you guys all again. Really appreciate you guys following Shields Outdoors on uh, social media. There's a lot of good content that's coming out. And it's going to be coming out with everybody coming up here for the virtual ice series. So with that, thanks, guys. If you want to say your parting words and we'll wrap it well, up. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for everybody. This is a neat event and uh, we'll be on tomorrow. So. Yep. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. And like Jason said, we'll hammer down on the questions and, you know, do our best to get through them and let's have a great ice fishing season. Absolutely. Tis the season. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone for tuned in tonight too. You just heard our recording with Jason Mitchell and Matt Johnson during our first session of the virtual ice series that happened on December 8th. 
it was fantastic to listen to all that ice fishing information. And it really brought a little something for everyone from your beginning angler all the way to your advanced fisherman. And what's really great about this segment is that afterwards, after this segment was done, these two came back to our Facebook event page and answered just about every single question that uh, that wasn't able to get fit into that hour-long segment. So really cool, and we're very thankful that they came back to, to do that because there's just... There's so much information and questions that were uh, that were asked out there, and we just couldn't fit it into an hour-long period. And you can go back and you can you can get an answer to all those questions that weren't shown here in this uh, in this hour-long segment. So lots and lots of ice fishing information to get you prepped and ready for the season ahead. If you are not following us on Facebook and Instagram at Shields Outdoors, make sure to do that. If you're not following the podcast here and liked what you heard, make sure to give us a follow on the listening platform you chose. And with that, we'll want to thank you for listening and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.